As our children go, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Jonah again. This is a Thanksgiving sermon, but we'll come at Thanksgiving from the back door. We'll find our way into, into Thanksgiving at the end of the sermon. So find the, the book of Jonah. If you're at uh, Amos, you're almost there, and then, and then Obadiah, and then Jonah. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 753. Our passage starts in verse 6. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 6. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray to the Lord and ask him for help in understanding and applying his word. Holy Father, we've just read these words. They're yours. This is your word. It endures forever. Uh, and yet we need your help to make sense of it, to see what it means, and to see how it's relevant to our lives now. And then we need your help to have the, the discipline and the faithfulness and the obedience to walk in the truth that you show to us. And so we're asking for your help, believing that you will give it. Make your voice heard and change us through the power of your word. Amen. All right, well, the first thing to notice about our text this morning is the way that it's told to emphasize the sovereignty of God, right? You can tell the same story any way you want, and the way this one's told emphasizes the sovereignty of God. These pagan sailors who worship multiple false gods recognize that this is not a normal storm. This is not just a regular weather event. But this is indication that something is cosmically wrong. This storm is somehow divine retribution. So they cast lots to see who it is that's gotten on the wrong side of the divine. 
Now, God is under no obligation to respond to that casting of lots, right? He doesn't owe them an explanation for what he's up to, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have to intervene every time someone casts lots, but he does in this case because he wants Jonah to be found out. Because as we noticed last week, this storm that God has hurled at Jonah, right? Remember that verb, like, like throwing a spear, he threw this storm at Jonah, But that's not an act of aggression. This is God's way of chasing down one of his children who's running away from him. But also, God, in this story, God doesn't just care about Jonah. God cares about the pagans in the boat with Jonah too. That's one of the main themes of Jonah. God's grace is not narrow, but broad. Over and over again, we'll see that in Jonah. God's grace is not narrow, but broad. That's good news for Gentiles such as ourselves. So God reveals to the sailors that it's Jonah that's the problem. So they go and ask a series of questions. Now listen, as you picture this interview, I know you know this story, and I know you've pictured this, this interchange between Jonah and the sailors, but I want you to keep in mind as you picture it, a storm of biblical proportions is raging outside. I've never been in a storm at sea. I have been in violent storms, though. And one thing that's common to all storms is that they're loud. Storms are loud. So this this was not like a, a hushed conversation that these guys are having, right? These men must have been shouting their questions at Jonah at the top of their lungs. And as they're doing so, the boat would have been rocking and pitching and tossing them around. Right? It's a crazy conversation in a crazy context. And everyone in the boat at the time is actively afraid for their lives. At that moment, everyone is thinking, more, than likely, more likely than not, I'm not getting out of this alive. Right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're genuinely afraid for your life. But if you have been, then you know that that's not the kind of situation that's conducive to a calm conversation. I just read, just a couple weeks ago, I read uh, Maggie O'Farrell's wonderful memoir. It's, it's called I Am, I Am, I Am. And uh, in, in the book, she recounts 18 near-death experiences that she's had in her life and what she's learned from them. It's a very life-affirming book. But one of those near-death experiences happens on a plane, on a crowded airplane over the middle of the Pacific Ocean. She says, she writes about it, she says there was no warning, there there was no indication that something was wrong. All of a sudden, she says there was just a loud clunking noise, and then a cold wind blew through the cabin, and then we felt an immediate plummeting, like like, like a rock thrown off a cliff, or like we were grabbed by the ankles and pulled down into the open mouth of the underworld. She says the cabin was shaken like a snow globe. Meals and drinks and children and two nuns whose robes were billowing behind them were thrown into the air. And then she describes the sound. And she says it was a loud mix of screaming, cursing, and praying. Now, I I, I think that scene of of loud chaos and primal fear and shouting and, and, and praying, that gets us close to what's happening on the ship. 
And amidst this screaming and cursing and, and praying and things flying around, there's this shouted conversation. Hey, who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? To which Jonah responds, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, if your translation, like the one that I read to start, if your translation says that he says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, you need to know that that's not the word that Jonah used there. The word is fear. He said, I fear the Lord. There's a different Hebrew word for worship. He didn't use that. He said, I fear Yahweh. That's important. Jonah and these sailors are in just about the most fearful situation a human can be in, right? They all think they're going to die. There's a storm raging. They're being tossed around. And Jonah says, as bad as a storm on a boat in the middle of the sea is, I'm even more afraid of the Lord. I fear the Lord more than I fear this storm. And now we're told the sailors are even more afraid. They were afraid. They were afraid for their lives because of the storm. Now upon hearing what Jonah has to say, we're told they're exceedingly afraid. That increased their fear. Why? Well, because this God that Jonah fears and serves seems to be a God of real power. This God is no joke. This God, this powerful God, seems to be venting his holy wrath upon this ship. And it makes them exceedingly afraid. Jonah, we're told that Jonah has confessed to them that he's running away from that Lord. And they say, all right, well, now, now you've got us in the middle of this. What are we supposed to do? And Jonah says, well, what, here's what you need to do. Throw me in. Throw me into the sea. And they say, no, no we're not doing that. Now, we're not told why they won't do that. Maybe they think, well, God's already upset. We're not going to make him more upset by throwing you into the ocean. But maybe this is just simple human decency, right? Maybe they just don't want to throw another human being into the ocean. And so they try to paddle back, use their oars and get back to land, but they can't. And so what do they do? What do they do? They pray. What, you mean like they pray to their pagan gods like they've been doing the whole time? No, no. Based on the testimony of Jonah, who fears Yahweh more than he fears this storm, they decide to pray to that Lord, the Lord of the storm, the Lord that Jonah just told them about. It says, therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, the storm's over now. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they had offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All right, so I just I want to talk about Jonah's response to the storm. I want to talk about the sailor's response to Jonah's response, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, as I think about that, I, I thought of a, I thought of a ship metaphor. Uh, we, we were given this metaphor by a guy named St. Augustine. He, he, he talked about it 1,600 years ago. He said that the, the church is like Noah's Ark. That was his image. The church is like Noah's Ark. The people of God are riding safely in the Ark 
While the storm rages outside, the job of the people on the ark, he said, is to invite the outside world to come in and find shelter in Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. That's one helpful way to think about the church and the world. The church is a place of safety, removed from the world, protected from the storm. All right. You can make a biblical case for that. But there's also another way of looking at this. You could think of the whole world as the ship, and all of humanity are on the ship riding out the storms that inevitably come when you live in a fallen world. According to that way of looking at it, we're all on this ship together. And how we respond to the trials, the challenges, the hardships of life, this is our testimony to the rest of the world who are watching to see how we respond. They're watching to see how faith makes a difference when the storm hits, right? The church is not separated from and removed from the world off on an ark somewhere, but they're right in it, in the storm with the world, and the world is watching to see what difference faith makes. I'll read you a, a, a passage from a commentator that I read about, about Jonah. He says, these sailors are pagan, or in modern terms, they are non-Christian, but the fate of non-Christians and Christians is linked. They're in the same boat. And the safety of all depends on what each one does. They're in the same storm, subject to the same peril, and they want the same outcome. And this ship typifies our modern situation. I like that. We're, we're, we're all in this world together. And how we respond, that's our witness to a watching world. Let me tell another ship story. This is a true ship story from history, and then I'll try to tie it all together. This is a story told by John Wesley. John Wesley was traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. He was on a missionary trip. He was going to go preach the gospel to the people in the colonies, crossing the Atlantic to go do that. But by his own testimony, he told this story much later, looking back on it, and by his own testimony, he would say that at the time, he was not a Christian. He's not a converted man. And you say, wait, what? How, what are you talking about not a converted man? He, how, how does a guy go on a missions trip to go and preach the gospel of Christ to others if he's not converted himself? Well, according to Wesley, he says, well, back then at that time when I was making that trip, my faith was squarely directed at myself. I was a good man, I was a moral man, I was doing good works, I was involved in prison ministry, I was involved in orphan ministry, I was involved in preaching in the church, and I thought that my good life and my acts of charity and my efforts in ministry were enough to get me on God's good side. I thought God must be impressed with all my effort and good works to build his kingdom. But what he says, looking back on it, is that is not the gospel. That was me trusting in myself. Well, what happened for him is that he was on that ship on his way to the colonies and it got hit by a huge storm. And suddenly John Wesley felt very afraid for his life and he felt a deep down panic and he was confronted with the fact that maybe he wasn't exactly at peace with God and maybe he was not quite ready to stand before his maker. But there were other missionaries that were on that ship crossing the Atlantic these missionaries were Moravians, which is a different denomination than the one that Wesley was a part of. And he watched how these Moravian missionaries responded to the storm. 
And what he observed is that they responded to it with faith and with peace and with worship. In fact, they didn't appear to be afraid to die at all. And they used that storm as an opportunity to gather for a worship service. Now, no doubt during that service, they did pray for the storm to end. I mean, anyone in a storm would pray that. But they also seemed content to leave the results to God. And they seemed ready to die. And they seemed ready to come before their maker. And that was their witness. It's not like they preached a sermon to John Wesley, but that was their witness, the way that they responded. And John Wesley was watching. And he was listening. And right then and there, he determined, I don't have what they have. But I want it. I wish I did. And that led him on a journey that ultimately culminated in him coming to true repentance and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wesley needed that wake-up call, or he would have just skated through life trusting in his own self-discipline and his own good works. That storm was a divine intervention in Wesley's life. Intervention. Intervention. You, you know where you often hear that word, intervention, is when someone's struggling with addiction, right? They, they have an intervention. See, the, the, the lie that the addict believes is that they can handle it, right? I got myself into this. I can get myself out of it. I can quit any time. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. Other people can see that the addict's life is out of control, but the addict, him or herself, can't see it. And so the friends and the loved ones, they have what's often referred to as an intervention. They gather together. They kind of surprise the addict in a way they sort of corner him with with love. And they say, look, we love you so much. And we deeply want what's best for you. But right now, you are killing yourself. And it's killing us to watch you do that. You think you can handle this, but trust us, we're watching and we love you and we know you can't. Admit that so that you can get help. That's an intervention. That's what God was doing with John Wesley with this storm. That's what God was doing when he hurled the storm at Jonah, an intervention. And maybe that's what God is doing to some of us right now, an intervention. God throws this storm at Jonah. He says, look, you think, Jonah, that you're better than the Assyrians. Guess what? You're not. You think, Jonah, that you deserve my grace because of your bloodline. Guess what? You don't. You think, Jonah, that just because you've been a faithful prophet in the past, that you can ignore my commandments and get away with it. Well, guess what, Jonah? You can't. That's God's love in action. That's grace chasing a man who needs to be confronted with his own sin so that he can be restored. And does Jonah get it yet? I don't think so. Maybe partly, but not fully. Is Jonah's request to be thrown into the sea, is that an indicator that he has repented of his sin? Or is that an indicator that he would rather die than obey God and go to Nineveh? I don't know. You don't know. Commentators love to speculate about that, but they don't know. It doesn't say. I think, I think, though, I think the point of this story is that Jonah is moving in the right direction. He's, he's, he's moving, finally, he's moving towards God instead of running away from him. But it's going to take a little more trauma 
before Jonah comes to a place of real repentance. And we'll deal with that in the weeks to come. But for now, we'll close by looking at the people in the story who do come to repentance, the pagans who are pagans no more by the end of this story. How do I know that? Well, look at the way the story's told. At first, they're completely freaked out by the storm, and each one is praying to his own God, right? So they were pagans doing what pagans do, praying to false gods. At that point, they go and find Jonah. They figure that Jonah's God is just one more God to add to the list, one more option. We might as well, we might as well cover our bases. We might as well hit all the divine beings. So Jonah, add yours to the list. Let's pray to your God too. But then they cast lots, and they figure out, no, 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 wait a minute. It actually, Jonah is the problem. It's, it's, it's Jonah specifically who's the reason for this storm. And so they go and they say, who are you? And at which point Jonah makes the first good choice that he's made since the story began. He gives testimony to Yahweh, the one true God. And eventually we find that these formerly pagan men are offering heartfelt prayer to Yahweh, the Lord of the seas and the land. And why am I so confident that those prayers are heartfelt? Well, it's because once the storm is over, once, the, once they're safe and the crisis is averted, they have a worship service right there on the boat. Jonah's gone now. Jonah's overboard, and they have a worship service on the boat. It says, that Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. They feared the Lord. Same word that Jonah used to describe his own relationship to Yahweh. They feared the Lord, and they worshiped him by offering sacrifices and making vows. See, so often prayers that are prayed in desperation are then forgotten once the crisis is passed, right? I, you know what that's like. You can probably identify with that, right? You, you, you're in a moment of crisis. You're crying out to the Lord, and then the crisis passes. And all of a sudden, things don't quite seem as pressing as they once did. The Lord doesn't quite seem as near or as fearful as he once did. It reminds me of a story of two friends who are arguing about the existence of God, as friends tend to do. One is an atheist, one is a believer. The atheist says, look, look, it's not as if I haven't tried prayer. Right? One time, let me tell you this, one time it was the middle of the night in northern Alberta, and it, it was minus 50 degrees, typical northern Alberta night, and it was minus 50 and my car ran out of gas, and I, and, I, and, I, and I wandered around to find help, and I couldn't find anybody, and I ended up in the middle of a field, and I didn't know where, where it was, and I was sure I was going to die, and I prayed to God, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll believe in you, and, 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 and I'll follow you all the days of my life. And the friend who was a believer said, well, God obviously answered that prayer. Here you are alive. And the man says, well, 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 no, God didn't answer my prayer. Right after I prayed that prayer, two men happened to be out hunting in a, in a dog sled, and, and, and they just happened to go right past me. And, 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 they, and they stopped, and they helped me. Listen, if you want to explain away God's presence in the world, right? If you want to explain away divine intervention and say, well, no, 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 that was just two guys out in the middle of the night, on a dog sled in 50 below weather. If you want to do that, you can. If you want to pretend that you are self-sufficient, you can. If you want to tell yourself that deep down you're really a good person, you can. 
If you want to tell yourself that God really had no choice but to accept you, in fact, God's kind of lucky to have, you on his t- to have him on your team, you can. You can do that, but the eyes of faith see it differently. True faith looks at oneself and says, I am a mixed bag. I'm not, I'm not evil down to my toes, but I'm a mixed bag of good and bad. I am both loving and selfish. I see it in myself all the time. I am both glorious and garbage, both. But no matter how hard I try, I'll never be good enough to satisfy God's perfect standard of love and of holiness. And at the end of the day, I'm just as badly in need of grace as those Assyrians were. And I'm just as badly in need of grace as those sailors from Joppa were. And I'm just as badly in need of grace as Jonah was. And it's at that moment that God meets us and says, perfect, perfect. I was waiting for you to come to this point. In fact, I wasn't just waiting. I was intervening. I was pursuing. I was chasing. You never got off my radar. And now that you see your need, now that you get it, let me show you how I've met your need through the sacrifice of my son Jesus. In one way or another, that's the testimony of every single Christian. And that's the source of our true thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving begins with recognition of our neediness. And then we're in a position, once we recognize our needs, we're in a position to thank God for all things. To thank God, just like our children did this morning, to thank God for the food we eat, for the grains we harvest, for the farms, for the jobs, for the families, for the beds we sleep in, for the houses that keep us warm, for the fellowship that we share with one another right here in this church, for the voices that we've been given to lift them up and sing, for the challenges and trials that we face that make us stronger, and for the ones that bring us down and show us our utter and complete dependence on God. For all things, for all things, we give thanks and praise to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we could, we could never list all the things, all the things that, that we have to be thankful for. But this morning I'm thankful that you, that you have intervened and, and where needed hurled storms and gotten our attention and helped us to see and to recognize our need of you. That, that you have, by your grace and by your spirit, allowed us to see that there is no ladder tall enough that we could climb our way to you. There are no amount of good works that we could do that would earn your favor. We're just not up to it. We just can't do it. And I'm thankful for the grace that enables us to see that so that we can stop depending on our own good works, stop counting on our resume, and put our full trust and faith in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that with that faith will come lives marked by thanksgiving in all things. And I know, Lord, that the rest of the world is watching the church and wants to see if faith actually makes a difference. And so I pray for our church that it would and that we would be a people marked by thanksgiving as our witness to a watching world. In Christ's name, amen.